Welcome to Scholars and Sense. It's the podcast that takes a deep dive into the issues of the day. We do so with thoughtful conversation, or so we hope, and we rise above the noise and talking points. With the help of my colleagues, we get to the heart of the matter. I'm Bill Bennett, alongside my co-hosts, Conrad Black and Victor Davis Hanson. Gentlemen, so much to talk about. Is the Biden ship taking on water? There are some polls. Let's start with the polls. I know they're not reliable, but they tell us something, a snapshot, as we say. His favorables are holding where they were a month or two ago. But on individual categories, obviously immigration, uh, but inflation, the economy, as he got becoming too liberal, these do not augur well for him. Is this the beginning of the come down? And what does it mean in terms of policy? in terms of the future? I would say the answer to those questions is yes, because uh, you know, that's how it starts. So I think we have to give the president credit for coming across as quite an amiable man personally. I mean, that's the average member of the public, which, which for these purposes I am. I've never met him, and I I'm certainly don't have a high opinion of him politically, but I will admit that he is, for the most part, rather uh, rather an amiable person that you would think just to see him, w- w- he'd be all right, a nice guy to have a drink with or something. And, and indeed, most politicians are like that. Otherwise, they're in the wrong business. But uh, so what you have is when when popularity erodes, it erodes in response to events and policies that, that disaffect people. And you know, I think you see it, as you as you implied, in uh, immigration and, uh, and uh, aspects of the economy spending this gasoline and fuel problem in the southeast must have affected the polls in those areas. And so, but I, I believe, looking at it historically, uh, unless it's an unusually controversial personality like Trump or an unusually attractive one like JFK or FDR or Reagan, the polls start to erode if the policies go awry. So I would say the answer is yes, because he had a straight score of approval on everything at the beginning. And, and uh, there was just such a degree of relief at the calm, the comparative calm and orderliness and, and uh, uh, good feeling of sportsmanship and so forth that superficially was imparted by the media in the early Biden days that, that he benefited from that, which is fair, I guess. But uh, he's, he's going to, as all these people do, if they get past the honeymoon, they get more and more scrutiny for how they're performing. And I yeah, I think he's going to have a real problem because I don't think any of his policies are working. Yeah, I, I would agree with some with a qualifier. I don't think people have connected the dots between the unpopularity of the border mess and the Middle East mess and the inflate starting to see an inflation mess and this rising crime mess with Joe Biden per se. And they will eventually. But he reminds me, I don't think he's really an amiable personal economy. He reminds me a lot of Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was very popular. We forget that in 77, 78, 79, he was very popular. In fact, Reagan really didn't pull ahead of him even after he was surely going to be nominated until we got that huge surge of anger, surge of anger against Carter with the hostages. But once people started to see the stagflation and the never ending hostage crisis, and once people started to direct their venom or anger or even their curiosity about all of these things that Jimmy Carter was responsible for, because remember he had he had been elected that I'm not the Nixon Ford Watergate era people. And I'm, I'm, I'm Jimmy from Plains. They started to see him and he started to be a very, not a nice guy. He was nasty. nasty. And, And when you see Joe Biden, I think what you're right about Conrad is he's very, they're very adept in keeping his contact with the 
with the population with us to a, a bare minimum. But every time they can't do that, and he gets out on that microphone, he, the other day he was screaming and yelling about apparently uh, Asian American hate crimes that he was attributing to all Americans. But he was just losing his temper. He gets confused. He gets angry. His eyes get very squinty. And yeah. he's, got, he's got that aged anger. So I think their strategy is that all of these things that are happening that don't poll 50% or, you know, Kamala Harris is handling the border and the State Department's handling the Middle East and Joe's just old Joe and you're not going to see or hear him very much at all. I think that we should, you know, dispense with, you know, t- two, two locutions in America. One is a be safe, uh, which, you know, I'm just getting tired of hearing. I've never said it, but I get tired of hearing it. Uh, and second, he's a really nice guy, but I don't think the really nice guy thing adds any. I just saw this video of John Cena. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. He's this uh, wrestler and uh, uh, yes. muscle man, movie star, apologizing in Mandarin to uh, the Chinese for calling uh, Taiwan, a country, of course, yes. which it is. But the thing that's bothered me as a regular watcher of Fox is that three people have come <laughs> on who you know, were there presumably to be critical, and all three just raved what a wonderful human being he is. And no, he isn't. Um, not on the evidence of this, I don't think. Uh, so it just, I don't think it adds anything. Who's not nice in America? If you tell me you know someone, Conrad, and you know I might want to meet him, but he's kind of surly, not very nice, I'm actually more interested in meeting him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but I, it, look, Bill, I, I feel I have to defend myself here. I All right, defend yourself, nice. yeah, because you're not particularly nice. Go ahead. <laughs> Sure. But I, look, I've never forgiven Joe Biden for what he did with Teddy Kennedy to Robert Bork. I thought it was of a course. disgrace. Well, and I, nice I, look, I think I think he's an appalling person. I mean, I didn't okay. think he handled the Clarence Thomas hearings well. And now this last year, he was apologizing to Anita Hill for, for basically not sandbagging Thomas, who's been a very distinguished justice. I, I, I did not wish to imply for one moment that I have a high opinion of Biden's personality, but I've not met him. But, but uh, my point is that he, he, you know, to people who are just becoming familiar with him in that office, he, he, he it, it's, it's, I think it's more, it's the quiet and the calm and the absence of the extremely high level of backbiting and uh, endless tweeting and so on that the, the people just got tired of. But Trump was in their face all the time. And oh, that, no, I know, I know. And he's benefiting no, no, he, from that, but it, that'll yeah. wear off and it's wearing off now. I mean, yeah, we've, yeah, all, yeah, we've seen honeymoons for every president since Eisenhower and they all wear off after a while. But I think the strategy of of him being pleasant, Conrad, is absence from anybody because to know or to see or to listen to him for more than a couple of minutes, he will, as Barack Obama said, Joe will find a way to flank it up. And yeah, he always yeah. did it. Even in the campaign, remember, if any other major politician over the last decade has said that Barack Obama was the first African, first black president, he said that was our clean and articulate. Or if anybody had said to an African American journalist, Hey, you're. What if I called you a cokehead or a junkie? Or if anybody had said you ain't black, and I could go on, yeah. he would have no credibility. He has that propensity to say really cruel things and stupid stuff, and then he goes into the Joe Biden from Scranton shtick. And I think everybody understands that uh, Tara Reid, if that that he yeah. just dismissed yeah. that whole thing. He did more than anybody to blow up the Me Too movement because after it reached its logical trajectory with somebody running for president and on the left, they couldn't pursue it anymore. Well, so. that and then they, they just couldn't go after the Clintons and, and, yeah. the, and the Kennedys. You know, they were the great icons of the Democratic right. Party and they had to leave them alone. And let me back off from this. I don't mean to criticize, the, you know, baby in the bathwater. There's such an emphasis in America on being a nice person. 
uh, you know, my wife says, you could be nicer. My, I, we have a grandchild now, our first. And, you know, I, I, I chose my own nickname, but everyone made, made it unanimous. And it's Grumpa, not Grandpa, but Grumpa, you know, for, for Grumpy. Yeah. Uh, so I, I see some virtue. But I understand Americans being nice. I don't know. Are we the nicest people in the world? We're among the nicest if you travel around America. But I just think in these conversations, about, you know, we're talking about the life and death of a country, perhaps. I don't, I don't really care, and I don't think it adds much anymore. Uh, to, to say that. But, you know, uh, Bill, I have to t- slightly take issue with that. I, I right. think I think that Americans generally, and there's nothing wrong with this, and, and it doesn't particularly distinguish them from some other nationalities, but like to think that their leader is someone who, if they knew him, they'd be happy to uh, to have a barbecue with him or something. I mean, they no. thought that about Roosevelt and Truman and Eisenhower and Kennedy, not so much LBJ or Nixon, but I, I think they thought it about Ford and for uh, uh, Victor's right for a while about Carter until they got a good look at him. It, people thought Reagan was nice. And, and um, uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I know him no, very well. I mean, nice wasn't the whole story, but they thought he was a nice guy. But if you pushed him too far, he was he, he would stand up for America, as he did. I worked for both, H.W. Uh, and Reagan. And I was very close to both of them. And Reagan was uh, a better president, no question about it. Yes. But H.W. was a much nicer guy, much nicer guy. Reagan was pleasant enough, but man, he could, uh, he put up that wall and that wall, you know, behind that wall was, was the president and Nancy. And, uh, it was the only, only so far the niceness would go. Um, and if you, and if you crossed him in any way, uh, and I, you know, I, I I made mistakes with both. HW was much more forgiving, much nicer about it uh, than Reagan was. Look, I wrote a book about Roosevelt and people thought he was a nice guy because he smiled a lot and it was a very charming man, but he wasn't. He, he, he was as, as Harry Truman said, he was the coldest man I ever met. He didn't give a damn about anybody. Okay, good. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I'm not talking about how what people are really like. I'm just talking about how they come across. Obviously, okay. the, you know, Eisenhower, part of his genius was he managed to combine the aura of the victorious theater commander uh, with, with, with uh, you know, the I like uh, smiling, golfing, avuncular man. And uh, it was a fraud. It was an image. It was obviously a very tough man. People thought, you know, he was a nice guy as well. well as I think I think you're talking. I think you're right. I think Conrad's point is that we're a therapeutic culture, and we like the idea that everybody's getting along with everybody. But it doesn't really have no. any correlation to to the actual fact. Reagan, remember, had two famous quotes. I'll always remember in California when there was a, a protest over People's Park. He said, "We're going to have a bloodbath. Let's get it over with." Yeah. And the other thing was during the Hearst giveaway of free food that the Black Panthers had demanded. He said, where is botulism when you need it? Yeah. And, yeah. So he was he he was a tough guy and tough sometimes customer. very food, tough customer. Uh, let's come back to this. Uh, if it's a wounded Biden or, or a guy whose stock is diminishing. Uh, let me talk Beltway for a second, because uh, I'm asked about it all the time. These uh, two two trillion dollar spending bills. Now the one that's on the table in negotiations is this infrastructure one. A lot of people think that uh, this is strengthening the hand of the filibuster people of the Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema in Arizona, uh, and that its odds of passing in anything like a way that Biden would like are, are less diminished. Uh, and this is partly because of the whole picture. Uh, Biden's 100 days is over, and uh, the thing is starting to shrink a little, uh, and his capacity to get things through uh, is diminished. Do you guys share that assessment? Uh, 
I think we, if you do, you underestimate the power of this Silicon Valley media yeah. uh, corporate nexus. That's okay. it's mm-hmm. really powerful. Mm-hmm. We got to remember that what these Democrats do is that once we think, take Obama, 2010, he lost the House. 2000, I guess it was 14, he lost the Senate. And we think they're done, and they're they're his. At one point, he was down to thirty nine percent. But then they detached themselves. So the idea of Obama was much better for most Americans. They really liked the idea of Obama, not the reality. So that last fourteen months, Obama was not really seen at all, and his his uh, approval ratings shot up. And part of it was because of the the primaries. But I think Biden will be the same way that he'll just slowly detach from the public view. And the idea of Joe from Scranton is pretty palatable. But as long as you don't have to see and hear him and he'll do what he did in the in the uh, campaign and transition, outsource it to media, to Silicon Valley, to all of these other appendages. And it's going to be they're very durable and they're very flexible. And and it's hard to to really get a, a Democratic president, I think, in the modern age to have a very low approval rate, unless they're just utterly incompetent and crazy. And well, that's what happened to Carter in the end. He became a symbol of American helplessness and embarrassment. Inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Larry Summers, uh, you know, several, several, several of the Democrats, you know, the Wizard of Omaha, who well, else several liberal economists have said, inflation's coming. But you, I think you pointed out last time, Victor, yeah. talking about lumber, uh, the inflation's here for sure. Well, in, in both gu- lumber and gasoline, inflation's over a hundred percent year over year. I mean, you know, hundred and, and how housing too is going up. Well, that would be related to lumber. Well. I think what's holding the country <laughs> is the slow interest rates. I, you know, it's very strange uh-huh. to see inflation with the indicators for four or five months that each month they not only increase, but they increase by a larger mar- margin. Then we have no, even discussion that we're going to raise the interest rates because we're in such a quantity with this huge debt and the stimulus coming off of COVID. But any other administration, Democratic, Republican, the head of the Fed would be talking about, you know, a 4% mortgage or a 5% mortgage because otherwise these people are going to get caught with hundreds of billions of dollars of 2.8 30-year mortgages that uh, when their money is eroding at the value of 10 or 12% a year. Do you guys subscribe to the view that while everything Victor said is right and the ability of of, uh, the social media and so on to to smooth it out for an indifferent or incompetent or even malevolent administration is is very considerable. People respond to what they feel themselves. And if they see prices going through the roof, they, they, don't, they don't really care about the image making that goes on. They get very dissatisfied. Yeah, I think yeah. It's a, if it's 5%, 4% inflation, they're susceptible to a PR. If it's up to 7, 8, 9, 10 and you get a Middle East where it's not just Hamas and Israel, but something even more, more serious, then it starts to affect their life. And if we start, if, if he really outsources his energy policy and these frackers and horizontal don't go back like some of them are holding back and gas here now in California, I'm here where we just filled up, it was $4.52 a gallon. Believable. So and what was it a year ago? It was probably around 270, 280. Wow, man. Yeah. So, but this is on the coast, but even in the, the cheapest part of California where we live, it was about $4.10 earlier in the week. So, <laughs> when you get that level of gas prices or inflation or worry about overseas stuff, 
um, then I think your your Conrad's right, and even the PR. But we're not there yet, is what I'm trying no, no. to say. Anything to the argument uh, I heard a economist making uh, the other day. Uh, uh, yeah, part of this is good news: the uh, lumber demand is people are building again, and confidence is up, and people are getting on the road, so gasoline prices are going up, and that's forty percent of this, or fifty percent. That's what this guy said. Anything to that? Uh, yeah, except the demand. I mean, what he's basically saying, we're going to go back to a booming, uh, almost uh, 3% GDP pre-COVID economy with record low peacetime employment. I think it was 3.4. For, But we didn't have this then, is what I'm saying. So what was Trump doing differently not to have the inflation when he had the good GDP and unemployment numbers? which we may get to. And it's very clear that he was encouraging production. Yeah. He was assembly. Yeah. He was, he was doing tax incentives for people to take risks for energy. He was approving pipelines. He was jawboning CEOs to get out there and take risk and to bring money back from China and to stop the outsourcing, the offshoring. And it was all on the productive end. And we're, we're, we're back and encouraging that new big steel plant that, uh, that Biden canceled and the pipelines. And he came out to California and he just gave lectures all over the state at his fundraiser about, we got to give more reservoirs and we got to get more water. So it was a can do let's produce to keep up with the demand, but we're going back to the Trump economy. But what's different now is that we're telling the producer you're culpable. Uh, you are responsible for global warming. You, your corporate taxes are too low. Your personal income taxes are too low. Your capital gains taxes are too low. There's not enough regulations against you. And that's going to have an effect to suppress supply. And I think that's what we're suffering from. As we get back, the demand is there. The easy money is there. People getting paid not to work, but we don't have sufficient demand because we're not getting the productive sector encouraged to to really expand in a historical fashion, which we need, and they're not doing it. Yeah, a, a three a seventy five percent shortfall to anticipated job figures in April. Uh, I've, I've you know I've been watching these things for a long time. I've never seen anything like that before. Yeah, so well, let's go. Let's go to Wuhan. Um, <laughs> all of a sudden, is this a wake up call? Uh, mea culpas by the press, uh, or at least a half mea culpas. Um, do we need to be guarded? Do you think? Uh, well, there's not sufficient evidence to prove that it was an animal, uh, and there's not sufficient evidence to prove that it came out of the lab. Doesn't the lab thing seem much more likely, given China's behavior uh, immediately afterward? Exactly. I mean, that's that's. I think that is the most decisive factor. I mean, however it started, there is no question that the Chinese deliberately tried to suppress it in China and did absolutely nothing to prevent it spread out of China all over the world. I mean, if that was their behavior after the fact, why should we give them too much of a benefit of the doubt before the fact? Now, I'm not one of these who think that they actually deliberately created this thing for the purpose of conducting germ warfare on the world. But, but I, I, you know, I think I, I, as you say, Bill, much the most likely possibility now is that it did develop out of that um, uh, facility in Wuhan. And then, and then once they lost control of it, they managed it in a way that to, to give them their due, won them a decisive strategic victory in the world. They flattened the rest of the world while unctuously with the choristers and the WHO supporting them, uh, taking a bow for their very 
for their very uh, efficient handling of it within China. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the fallout of this is going to be considerable. Now, the ability of the world, including the United States, to look the other way, given the implications of having a real set to with China, uh, shouldn't be underestimated. Why? Do you have a guess, Conrad? Two <clears throat> questions. What made Biden sort of stop and pause and say we needed to better take another look at that? What did he hear? What did he see? What did someone tell him? And is this is the press turning a little bit uh, on this issue, or is there generally some reason to think the press may be flirting with objectivity from time to time? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I don't know if Conrad agrees, but that long Nicholas Wade article who was uh-huh. a former New York Times. Very influential. And it, he just laid it out. And he was not a partisan. He was a man of the left. And he just said, we can't prove either the lab of uh, exegesis or the pangolin dash bat. But here's the likelihood. And it was a, actually, it was a, yeah, it was a devastating. And he, he's British, right? Yes, he is. Yeah, so coming from another country, it, it sort of it lifts him out altogether from the partisan back and forth in the U.S. I think a lot of happened in the New York Times. They they sort of ideologically cleanse a lot of their writers on science. I think Nicholas Wade used to write for him a while, and so did John McNeil, the guy that had the problem with the high school students on the trip to Latin America. They fired yeah, him, yeah. and he, he wrote a long piece. It wasn't quite as devastating as Wade's, but it was pretty. It was pretty clear that he's no longer an advocate of a bat. And when you start seeing some of the evidence that the scientists that were always skeptical say that there hasn't been any animal they know of that had this virus. I mean, if it came from an animal, they just would like to know where the animal is that has the exact same SARS virus and they can't find any. And then the Chinese attitude is devastating and everything about this virus, the origins, the date of its uh, discovery, the nature of it have all been at one time or another uh, fabricated or lied right. or, or re- and then the World Health Organization. The, the fact what, that this debunking well. is not coming from Trump or anyone around Trump makes it yes. makes them not resist. Against. Well, against. That's is, is it are we, are we at a point where uh, uh, sufficiently far away, uh, far enough away from Donald Trump that the press can? I'm asking this the second time again, I, <laughs> Conrad. You're the press guy. Uh, you look at these guys. Are, they, are we far enough away from Donald Trump so that these guys might actually be waking up a little bit? Flirting yeah, a with objectivity? Will this get better on this issue and other issues? Will the press I, get I, better? I, I, see, I think that the ex-president has played his cards well. He, he sends out press releases on emails, really, and, and gives about one important speech every two months. And as as and I think it's helping him, and uh, you know, as so often happens in these things, the irony is they set out to punish him by banishing him uh, from the social media, and it's actually helping him. And and uh, and this regime is so incompetent and and is so incongruous that it will steal in its own juice to a degree. And and the media, at least the the comparatively reasonable elements of the media. Uh, can detach themselves from their old partisanship and pat themselves in the back for objectivity by attacking the Biden administration as long as they're not just being mouthpieces for Trump. So in a way, Trump, by his silence, is gradually recruiting the halfway reasonable elements of the media to do his bidding for him. 
and say, well, look here, you know, we don't like Trump, but we should note that, you know, you know, what Biden's doing here isn't working and the Biden version wasn't accurate. Will that change? Does that does that change if uh, Trump uh, reemerges dramatically as he looks like he might with these rallies and so on and becomes front page again and announces that he'll be 2024 candidate? Yeah, well, it'll change a bit, but I think I think we've got nine months before that happens. I mean, he's he's, hope so. He he said he's going to hit the trail to help the candidates in the midterms, but he doesn't have to do that for another year. So yeah. if, 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 if he, I mean, if I may slightly change topic here, Bill, not, not, but if I can just introduce this, I think that one of the things that has almost died in the last, almost since the last talk we had is, is this myth embraced fervently uh, more out of hope than, than analysis by the never Trumpers and some of the Democrats that, uh, that, you know, the, the original Mitch McConnell, Peggy Noonan theory that Donald Trump is just some dreadful meteor that passed through the sky and is gone now. And then we'll be back to the, uh, to the good old days of McCain and Romney and so on. And Bush's, uh, it, 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 I mean, it's, it's not happening. And if you look at these polls, uh, 43 to 13, Trump leads Pence. And, and the others are in single digits. I mean, nobody serious is going to announce for the nomination until we, we've heard whether Trump's running or not. Uh, and, yeah. and it's still his party. And, and he, I suspect that he is going to campaign vigorously next year and, and that the Democrats are going to get bombed at the polls. And if that happens, uh, the, 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 then I, the, that brings on the last, uh, the, the absolute last shot in the locker they've got, which I'm afraid we're going to get to. I suspect that Vance is going to seize on ludicrous pretext to bully a grand jury into indicting him. Now, I think it'll backfire in the end, but that, all, that's all they've got is to throw the legal spaghetti at the wall. What, what the media is doing when they're re, refashioning these stories is very interesting because they say if you take the uh, Wuhan lab, now somebody like Tom Cotton or Trump is not a conspiracist, but they might have been right, but... We have to remember that Trump polluted the entire dialogue by uh, right, right. preempting and, and accusing them and using the word Wuhan virus. So then when they get into the Asian-American hate crime narrative, they say, well, maybe it isn't white supremacists, but it's other minority groups that are mostly responsible. But Trump yeah. coined, coined the word China virus or Wuhan, so he created a general climate of hatred. Yeah. And it's almost same thing with the border. Well, maybe there's a problem there. It may be a crisis, but it wouldn't have happened. And ditto the Abraham uh, Accords marginalized the Palestinians, and therefore they un- he unnecessarily created dissent and anger and frustration. And that may even have explained the anti-Semitic outburst of the United States. So they find a way, uh, a tortuous way to, to still blame Trump. But it's getting harder the more that, uh, that he's distant it. His ostracism from Facebook, and as Conrad pointed out, we've talked about that before, and Twitter was a gift for him because it allowed him uh, to have a reason not to to weigh in on every issue, every moment. Well, I I just, it's not just the ideological disposition. By the way, to your list of New York Times science writers, uh, the esteemed, in my view, uh, Alex Berenson, uh, yes. who was very good early on on COVID and even before very that on, on, on marijuana, God knows. He had unpleasant things to say about marijuana, which he got did. him fired. Um, but, you know, the other night, sorry to be 
uh, so local in my comment here, but you know, I was I was talking on Fox about well, consider the possibility that China unleashed this thing on the world, and a well-known, respected journalist said, "Well, if they unleashed it on the world, you've got 10 million dead people. They'd certainly get a black eye, a black eye, yeah. a, a black eye for killing 10 million people. I mean, that I, that's not ideology. I don't think. I think that's." That, that is just ignorance, isn't it? I mean, I, I, you know, maybe but, that's but, ideology, ideology corrupting the mind, corrupting the brain. Well, I mean, we're, you're talking about a profession that, as you know, in the 20s, Walter Duranty won a Pulitzer Prize for assuring us that Stalin was the savior as he, as he starved and killed 20 million people in Ukraine under the uh, yeah. persecution. The, the, he was the a hero family. of collectivized agriculture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Mao, I can remember being a UC Santa Cruz uh, freshman in 1971 and going to my politics class. I won't mention the professor. He's dead. So it would be untoward of me to speak of him after postmortem. But uh, this was after the Cultural Revolution. This was after Mao's 60 million dead. And we had to sit there and listen to Radio Peking while he translated for us. And, and wow, great. So I don't think that the Western leftist uh, intellectual is very worried about the body count, really, if it, as, at least in compared to ideological affinities. Uh, but but I think we have, have to remember that 75 million people voted for Trump. And and so it, it, he's not a tiny minority. I was watching this town hall governors that Hannity had, and I, I'm not a particularly frequent Hannity viewer, but... Uh, it, uh, DeSantis of Florida, Abbott of Texas, and, and Miss Noam of South Dakota all basically said that they thought that the last election was stolen. And the, so, the, you know, the message to me is that the fanatical attempt of the entire media, including people on Fox News, including good people like Britt Hume and so on, saying, well, there's no evidence at all that there was it's a questionable election. So uh, I, I, that's failed. And therefore, failing with it, and visibly so, I, I put to you, is the argument that on January 6th, Trump set out with malice of forethought to start an insurrection. I mean, that's just the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. As we all know, an insurrection includes taking over the armed forces and the media and so on. And, and, uh, and I think all of that is sort of coming down around their ears. And, and it, it comes down more quickly and more disturbingly to their residual credibility, the less Trump himself has to do with debunking it, as we've all said. I'm yeah. a little worried. You see George Will the other day? See George I, Will? I, I was shocked. I've written something about that. I like George, but he, he's one. He's the absolute leader of the group of intelligent people who've lost their minds on the subject yeah. of Trump. Yeah. Well, he yeah, said funny. January 6th and 9-11. Yeah, yeah I was equated, wondering about equated, that. equated the two of them. Equated right. the two he, of them. He sent his employees home on January 6th because he apparently thought the, the mob would surge all the way out to Georgetown and smash up his offices. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think, George, it's, it's time for the Wooden Gun Brigade. I mean, he's just, yeah. he's, I you know, he's suffering from it, cabin fever. I mean, it was obvious. I think most people realize it was a mostly spontaneous, wrong riot of misfits but and crackpots, but the, all of the narrative talking points that we were told and they weren't just within the next 48 hours after the incident but they still persist every one of them is a lie officer sicknick was not killed by a yep, protester right. 
He died no. of a natural causes. There were no insurrectionist leaders that, that they've ever been that found. There's no kingpins, no architects. No one sitting in solitary confinement or even uh, in jail has ever been charged with sedition or treason or conspiracy. Even though they're obviously trying to wring out of them false yes. allegations, you know, yes. you know they're, and then the only and then they keep saying five people were killed. There were five people who died. One was killed, and that was an unarmed 14-year military veteran who was shot. And a Trump the, supporter. Yes, and we still don't know any of the information about the shooter, nor do we have any of the videos that might clarify since the government won't release them. So I don't know why they want a commission, because if it was at all bipartisan, all of that would come out. And I know that they they, they want to suppress that, but that's another, it's going the way of the Russian well, that's to bring up that's to bring up Trump front and center again, isn't it? To yeah, I think that's part of why the, they, look. All, yeah. That's the that's the Trump hate new offensive. It's a possible indictment in New York. Uh, you know, it's Ms. Yeah. Hennessy going back to the Justice Department, and, and it's this fake commission they want to set up because you know they're really running out of gas. So let's go back to Trump hate. It's the only thing that's worked for them, but it has worked. So what's the we effect? Can, what's yeah. uh, can we do politics for a minute? Yeah. What's the effect of Donald Trump going to North Carolina, coming to North Carolina, here where I am, apparently he's coming soon, and saying, I'm going to support everybody I can and find a good candidate for 24, I'm not running. What would that mean? What would that do politically? Well, is, is he said that he's not running in 24? No, 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 no he's no. not. No, he's not. What, what, if he did that, if yeah. he did that. Well, well I, I, think he, I think he would lose, in an odd, ironic way, I think he'd lose a lot of clout. So if he's not going to run, if that's what he's decided, he, I don't think he'll tell us for mm-hmm. another two years, because as long mm-hmm. as it's a mystery, he yeah, has a lot yeah. more influence, I think. Okay. Yeah, but but uh, I mean, you're the North Carolinian. Uh, is his daughter-in-law running for the Senate there? I don't know. Uh, nobody, no. nobody knows. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, you're right, Victor. It, it does that. It would, it would, it would, he, his clout would decrease, but, but <laughs> I'd almost like to see it solely for what it would do to the left. What would they do? Because everybody would say, well, that's that. What we're not talking about him anymore. Let's yeah, talk policy. Let's talk but policy. He, what, what's interesting, if he put himself out of the equation for 2024, I don't think it would affect his agenda at all. I don't think you no. have a, a num- no. number of uh, maybe to the left of Nikki Haley get up and say, you know what, we've got to we've got to go back to a libertarian no, idea no, about no. the border, or you know what, we we can't subsidize or help industry in the deindustrialized de- middle west middle no his, his clout would his clout would be diminished his agenda has been institutionalized whether he yep. whether and, they don't and my they don't. point and my point is it would be front and center and the yeah. policy issues would be front and center a year after um solemn commemoration of george floyd's death was uh sort of overwhelmed by a rampage of uh, riotous uh behavior and murder and crime in American cities, some commemoration, some solemnity. Yeah. Huh? And and uh, it, look, I, what happened to him was a terrible thing, as we all know. But this attempt to build him up as a virtual Nathan Hale figure of the of the uh, progress yeah. of the African American community has been terribly overdone. You know, I mean, he, uh, it, as I say, what happened to him was an outrage. But he he was not exactly a a natural person to be. Um, uh, held out as a as, as a role model and a hero. No, what, what I'm worried about <laughs> is that because of the defunding police efforts, there's been 
a lot more killings than there needed to be in the year since, and that's fallen heavily on the minority community. And I think a lot of people thought that whatever the differences we had about race, the Trump economic project had a record low African-American unemployment. And for the first time, really in my lifetime, employers were begging labor uh, and not vice versa. And that gave a sense of dignity to people. And it was really, everything was starting to improve. And then suddenly after George Floyd, it was this rewriting of history that we were systematically racist, systemically racist. It was hopeless. Everything was terrible. And yet that was belied by the facts that, that you saw every day. The other thing that was really disturbing is I'm, I'm speaking, somebody has to sometimes work in academia and you have all of these very wealthy coast by coastal white liberals. And they always do the same thing. They write a memo to you or they get on uh, in an assembly and they confess to their white privilege and how bad it is and how terrible, but it's always a preemptive careerist move because it has no consequences. When you hear a, a provost or a dean say, you know, I, I'm here because of white privilege, you want to say, well, okay, quit and give your job to somebody else that's not like you, but they never yeah. do. And so yeah. I think a lot of this was cooked up by elitist, wealthy, white, guilt-ridden people that created a lot of virtue signaling and psychological projection for in a in a sense of it was a self defense mechanism Whether well you know psychologically I th- they're, they're they're worried about their career or their guilt or i don't know what it was but they they did a lot of damage is what i'm trying to say no i, well, I agree and i've wondered you know we talked before because my two sons alma mater princeton uh the great thing that happened there during the trump administration we talked about this before was that you know they confessed to institutional racism and Trump's Justice Department said, oh, let, let's take a look because you guys are getting a lot of federal money. And if you're practicing racism, we're going to cut you off. Exactly the right response. And the yeah. president, of course, said, oh, no, no, we're not really. We just we just say that, you know. Anyway, I, I think when these individuals do it, somebody should say we should launch an investigation as to whether this person confessing to racism has been guilty of hate crimes uh, and uh, quite apart from resigning. I don't know if there's an individual analogy to the Princeton example. I mean, not to be Machiavellian here, but as I understand it, even those municipalities that, that have come to their senses and are trying to rehire police or, or just shore up the vacancies left by police who become demoralized with their jobs for obvious and good reasons and quit, e- even these people are not actually getting the level of, of, um, of, of police capability right, for, their, right, for their cities right. that they need and the rising crime rate is really going to move a lot of votes in the end and, and the, even the nastiest trump hating media are going to have a hell of a time shifting yeah. the blame for that onto trump yeah well that, that's yeah. where i was wondering where you went I, I maybe missed it maybe i wasn't listening closely victor won't the effect of this uh radical increase in crime in minority communities bring more minorities for law and order and more more support for Republican candidates, maybe? Yeah, I think it will. And I think it affects okay. a lot okay. of minority officers. I, I know some of them. And when you talk to them, they more or less says that when you go out on a call into a crime-ridden neighborhood, it's a lose-lose-lose situation. If you're lucky enough to make it the arrest, 
a Soros appointed DA probably will nullify yeah. all of your yeah. risk and let the person yeah. off. If yeah. you use force because the suspect resisted, that's, that's going to end badly whether you ha- it's lethal or not because you're the policeman. If you don't use force, you may be shot or injured by the assailant who feels that you have no longer any deterrence. And yet, so if you say, well, it's lose, lose, lose. So therefore, when I get a 9-11 call to Oakland or the worst sections of Chicago, I'm just not going to go or I'm going to slow down or I'm going to tell a minority officer, you're more likely not to cause a controversy than I am if I were a white officer. Then the minority officer legitimately says to the white officer, so you get to go patrol the, the low crime areas and in a racist fashion, you're putting me on the line. And so when you look at that whole matrix, it's a mess. And the result is the criminal says, the police don't have it together and there's no way I'm going to be arrested, uh, indicted, right. convicted and serve time. So in a cost benefit analysis, it makes sense to commit a crime. What was hey, look, the, uh, I, just on a, if I may, just on a particular point, yes, my wife happens to be in New York city today and this week. And, and, uh, she, there's an app on your cell phone to, to hit emergency and she accidentally hit it. So we, I got a call, and I, uh, my manager in my house here got a call as, as contact people, and, and, and her sister did, and so on. It, it was eight hours. I know she tried to, to notify the New York police that there was no emergency. It was a mistake. But she concluded that she did not get through the bureaucracy that she reached. Them. And, and the police called her eight hours later and said, have you had an emergency? So she explained mm-hmm. it. But uh, wow. this, is, this is Upper East Side of New York. I mean, uh, like it's not necessarily indicative of too much, but if the whole public sense of protection and their own security starts to erode seriously, somebody is going to pay for that politically. And I don't see how even even Jack Dorsey hangs that one around Trump's neck. Do either of you know any more of the background? You know the story um, in Floyd's uh, George Floyd that that cup Seven Eleven or whatever outside of which you know the the Chauvin murder took place. Yes, uh, a woman uh, called from inside that district and said she was shot and bleeding. And the nine one one dispatcher talked to the police and said, "Police said, can she move a couple of blocks? Uh, because that apparently is like a no go zone. Uh, it's become a no go zone, like these areas yeah. in Portland where the police are not allowed to go. So here's this woman bleeding uh, profusely, and she's asked if she can move a couple of blocks uh, because of the." Uh, you know, denial of the police to enter that area or at least the expectation that they want. Yeah, I think a lot of this is because there would be a lot more outrage, but the COVID and the <laughs> lockdown and all of the conundrum about the election have kind of desensitized people. But as they mm-hmm. start to come out and they realize that mm-hmm. really you can't go into a city. I, I, somebody asked me if I would like to speak in San Francisco and they said, you know, if you come up, we got to tell you, you can't take your car. Because even the parking lot of the hotel, we've had people go in and steal because if they can steal up to a thousand dollars and not even be arrested. And so it's it's yeah. breaking. It's got the highest property crime rate per capita of any city in the United States. That's just beside talking about apps, you know, the famous app in San Francisco that tells you where human feces is. And so you know how to avoid that area of the sidewalk or that neighborhood. So there's a, there's just a sense now that we are surrendering the cities. Uh, and we're not going to go there anymore. We're not going to travel there. There's whole areas of America 
where millions of people are live that are going to be no go zones for the general public by by volition. They're just not going to want to go there. That does it for today's show. Want to join the discussion? Email this show at scholarsandsensepodcast at gmail.com. Share the show with your family and friends. Subscribe, rate, review. For Conrad Black and Victor Davis Hansen, I am Bill Bennett, and we'll talk again soon.